Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in Him. Today is going to be part one of a multi-part sermon. I can't tell you how many parts just yet because I don't know uh, how far this is going to go. I do know this much that I will not say everything today that needs to be said about this subject. The question that we're answering finally after all this time of waiting is why did God give the law? So uh, you're going to hear this message today and there are going to be many other things that you will probably want to have uh, answered or discussed and I'm just not going to do it today. We're just going to get started. So bear with me because like I said, this is a multi-part sermon, a certain number of parts that will come. I don't know how many. And hopefully by the time we're done, I will have answered a lot of your questions, but we'll see how it goes. We're going to read Galatians chapter 3, verses 19, uh, all the way to chapter 4, verse 7. And then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please look at verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Father, we... We need you today, we need your spirit to open our minds and our hearts to understand. Lord, I'm reminded of your comments to the disciples, to the crowds in Matthew 10, that, that all who are labor and heavy laden should just come to you and take your yoke upon them, because your yoke is easy, it is light. And I'm reminded that for all of humanity, we all, we all labor under a yoke of responsibility. 
For some, it's a yoke of religion. It's a, a yoke of, of maybe personal morality. It's a yoke of, of feeling some responsibility to, to be right before you, but feeling that that responsibility is ours. And what we have seen over and over again here in Galatians is that responsibility is not ours. It's yours, Christ. You, you are the one who makes us right with the Father. Your yoke is very easy. It is very light, and it comes by faith alone. And so I pray that as we think through these things, we will examine our own hearts to understand how we, to this day, continue to sometimes operate as if the yoke is much heavier than it really should be. May our hearts and minds be pointed back to Christ, the simplicity of faith, the, the beauty of the gospel, the fact that you have completely set us free, that there is no condemnation now for us, and may we rejoice in that and go out and live in that freedom every day. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this past Christmas, uh, one of the presents that Jamie and Hannah got was a series of cake decorating classes at Michael's. They had been talking about it for a while, and each had expressed an interest in learning how to decorate cakes, and so this seemed like a good idea. Hannah got this little, like, cake decorating kit, and it came with all the tips and the bags and the who's-its and what's-its that you need to decorate a cake. And then on top of that, they bought one of those little uh, special uh, cake transport things. You know what I'm talking about? You can put cakes and cupcakes in. It's got a lid, and you can move it around. So they got one of that. So a cake carrier, I guess you'd call it. They were set, right? They signed up for their first class, which required them to bring a dozen cupcakes to the class so they could practice decorating on these particular cupcakes. And, and everybody was excited, right? Jamie and Hannah were excited. They had been looking forward to this for some time. They wanted to decorate these cakes. Nathaniel and I were excited. We wanted to eat these cupcakes. It was one of those rare moments in your family where everybody wins, right? Every, every single person. And so finally, their first class came. Uh, I will remember the night forever. It was the Friday night when we were supposed to get that big snowstorm back in January. Remember that, the snowmageddon that never really happened? But it was that Friday night it was supposed to start coming in. And everybody had a job that night. Nathaniel was supposed to go to a birthday party. Jamie and Hannah were supposed to go to the class. And I was supposed to be the chauffeur picking everybody up, dropping them off at all the right times. Well, the evening began, <coughs> excuse me, successfully enough. I dropped everyone off at all the right times. And then I had to wait just a little bit uh, in between to go back to pick up Jamie and Hannah from the class. And as I was waiting, I got bored. And so I thought, well, why don't I just go to Michael's a little early and I'll go in and just see what they're doing. So, you know, maybe I could watch through the window and see what was going on. So I left the house. Sure enough, I drive over to Michael's. I go inside and lo and behold, the only two people in the class were Jamie and Hannah. There was nobody else taking this class. So I thought, well, great. I'll just walk right in because they were just in there talking with the teacher and as I go in, I see that they're pretty much done at this point, and they've got these 12 very cutely decorated little cupcakes sitting on the cake carrier thing, and they're just cleaning up stuff and talking and whatever, and I'm watching the time. It's kind of taking a while, and then the teacher's like, well, here, let me take you out to the store. I'm going to show you a couple more things. So she walks them out in the store because she's selling, right? That's the purpose of the class, really, is to sell. So they go out into the store, and they're out there for like five hours. I don't know. It was a really long time, it felt like and uh, seeing all the stuff, and I'm sitting there looking at the time, and I'm getting kind of worried because I, I know we need to get going to get Nathaniel from the birthday party. And so I do what any good husband would do in this scenario. I decide to help. I decide to help start cleaning up, right? So I started with the cupcake carrier, 
And I, I, I brought a picture of the cupcake carrier itself. This is the exact one that we got uh, Hannah for the class. And I just want to notice a couple of features on this particular carrier. Notice that it has a base. And on each side of the base are two purple latches that are designed to latch onto the lid, right? So you put the cake or the cupcakes down on the tray, and then you put the lid on. And I also want you to notice that the lid has a handle at the top of this, which would, in my mind, indicate that that's where it's supposed to be carried from, right? <laughs> Call me crazy, but that's what I would think. And so this is what I did. I latched everything up. I, you know, I got some stuff together, and I pick up the cupcake carrier, and I make it out of the store, and about halfway through the parking lot when and now you know where this is going, the bottom dropped out, literally. And this is what we had. All 12 of them. You can count them. <laughs> number 12 got decapitated, as you can see, up by number 7, I think it is, uh, lost his head. And, and, you know, I remember there was this woman getting into the car. <laughs> like, I'm walking along, I've got, the, boom, there they go. And I look up, and she's right there, and she sees it. And I look at her, and she looks at me, and then we both look down at the cupcakes. And I just started laughing. <laughs> not because it was funny, mind you, because it was not funny at all. It was one of those laughs of, like, nervousness and guilt, uh, if you know what I'm talking about. Like, I just could it was laugh or cry, and I'm not much of a crier, so I just, I just started laughing. But then the really hard part came uh, because there was clearly no salvaging them. It was raining. The, you can see the, the, the parking lot's wet and it was raining on, on, at the same time. And so that meant I had to go back in and tell them that I had dropped the 12 cupcakes. And so I did whatever any self-respecting husband and father would do in that moment. I got in the car and left. <laughs> All right, not really, but that's what I wanted to do. Now, I put the empty container in the car and I made the walk of shame back into Michael's to meet my wife and daughter, and I told them that I had dropped the cupcakes. And they took it fairly well, uh, especially considering the hours of work and the weeks of expectation that had gone into those 12 cupcakes. Of course, I heard some of the expected responses. Why didn't you just let me do it? Well, I was trying to help. That was clearly why I didn't just let you do it. Uh, didn't you know that you were never supposed to carry those things from the top? No, I didn't know that. I, I assumed in my logical mind that a handle on top meant carry here, right? That's, that seems to make sense to... Guys, you understand that, right? Every man in here would have looked at that and said, that's where you carry it from. I, uh, Dad, you owe us for this. Yes, yes, I did. And I'd do anything to make up for it. And all the while, while, all of this is going on, this is not a lie. You could ask the entire family. It was like an hour, 45 minutes of this or an hour. I can't stop laughing. Like, <laughs> I just couldn't because I felt so bad about what had happened, and it just was not helping the situation in the moment. However, I did pay them back uh, for Jamie. She just wanted me to clean everything, just to clean everything, which doesn't sound that bad, but when you have frosted using every tip you own, that's a lot. And I didn't learn until months or weeks or months later that there's a little tool for cleaning those things. She knew that and didn't tell me that night. <laughs> I sat there and hand-washed every one of those tips. I think she did that on purpose. Uh, so I paid Jamie back for that. I repaid Hannah a couple of days later. She was hungry one morning. 
and decided to make some grits for herself for breakfast. And instead of grabbing the grits from the side, she grabbed them from the top, and this happened. And she called in her favor at that moment, and I cleaned that up. Now, why am I telling you this story? Well, it all has to do with the word purpose. I mean, if you were to see a cupcake carrier, I already said this, right, and it's got a handle on top, you would assume that that means carry here. Uh, if it was anything else, right, a suitcase, a, a, a briefcase, a, a, maybe it's all men's things, I don't know, a, a purse, you, if anything that had a handle on top, you would think it means to carry here, but, but I guess sometimes the purpose that you think is, is applying to a particular thing doesn't necessarily apply, and this, of course, brings us to where we're at here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, and the question before us this morning, which is, what is the purpose of the law? Now, this question has been building, I think, in our minds all the way since the beginning of Galatians chapter 3. And as we all know quite well now, I think, Paul's larger point, both in the letter as a whole, but also particularly here in this chapter, is that life in the Spirit and the life of faith is so much better than life under the law. And therefore, that returning back to that law in any way and for any reason makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And so to do this, he's been building an argument that is mostly based on the example of Abraham and the covenant that God made with him way back now in Genesis 15. As you know, again, I think very well at this point, that covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 15 was not in any way based on Abraham's adherence to the Old Testament law. In fact, the Old Testament law didn't come for how many more years after that? Who remembers? 430. 430 years later, the law would come. And so what, what Abraham did is no way connected to the law. The only prerequisite of that covenant, if we're going to call it that, would be Abraham's faith. Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Now, as we looked at verses 15 to 18 here in uh, Galatians 3 last time, we saw that Paul made a big deal about the fact that this covenant came 430 years before the Mosaic Law. And the reason he did this, if you'll recall, is because in Paul's day and in biblical times, covenants were a really big deal. And once you had entered into a covenant with someone, you could not end that thing or change that thing in any way before it had reached its uh, uh, intended course, which means then that the covenant that God made with Abraham and his offspring, singular, who Paul identified in that passage as being Christ, that covenant was not in any way annulled or altered by the introduction of the Old Testament law. Even though, like, you know, what did I say last time? Like 95, 98% of the Old Testament is focused on Israel and their failure to keep the Old Testament law, that is not the real and central focus of the Old Testament. The real focus of the Old Testament, according to Paul in that passage, is the promise made to Abraham, a representative of all humanity at that point, if you think about it, and on the offspring to whom and through whom those promises would be fulfilled, and that, of course, is Jesus Christ. So this is where we ended. <clears throat> Excuse me. If the covenant made with Abraham was that important and that central, and Jesus, if he is the true recipient 
of all of those promises, everything that God was, was promising to Abraham back in Genesis 12, 13, 15, 17, then why all this? Right? That was, that was the question. Why the law? What was God doing with the rest of this? Well, as you can see here in verse 19, Paul gets that that is the question of the moment. He, he understands that he can't avoid it any longer. Not that he was trying to avoid it. He just, now it has to be answered. And, you know, and I was thinking about this this week. We see this as being a really big question right now, even though we are Gentiles who are culturally and historically way removed from, you know, the law. None of us in here grew up feeling like we have to keep some kind of law in order to be accepted before God. Well, on second thought, maybe some of us did, but more on that later. But, but in a sense, you know, we're like outsiders trying to understand Paul's experience and the experience of his original readers. And even we as outsiders can see how central this question is right now. Imagine how they were feel, feeling at this point, right? Having grown up in Judaism, having grown up under the law, imagine how the original readers were like, right now struggling to, to understand all of this because from their perspective, Paul has been reinterpreting everything about their knowledge of the Old Testament. He's saying to them that everything they thought they understood about it is pretty much wrong. And now, now he's going for the jugular, right? The, the very purpose of the law itself. So just imagine how they might have read this. I want you to appreciate it from their perspective. The, the answer to the question is initially, notice that word, initially, we're going to get an initial answer and then we're going to get more answer, but initially is threefold. And I want you to look at each of these three components. First, he addresses the purpose of the law when he says that it was added because of transgressions. Okay, you see that? This is the, the short answer. Why the law? Well, it's added because of transgressions. But this, of course, raises a question. Well, what exactly does that mean? It's added because of transgressions. Because you could take this in two different ways, and I love how Scott McKnight points this out. He does it with a question, kind of the chicken and the egg approach. He says, which comes first, sin or the law? And I want you to think about that for a moment. Which comes first? Does sin come first or does the law come first? You say, I'm confused. Well, let me try to help you out. In other words, was there already sin in the world and so God gives the law in order to shine light on that sin, to expose it, to, to reveal it, so that, so that you could see just how sinful you are. So, so is the law, is it sin first and the law just comes to, to expose that sin, or did the law cause the sin, so to speak? Okay, cause in quotes there. Did it cause the sin, so to speak? And as an example... You know, let's make, uh, I'm, a, I'm a Jewish guy. I'm living in Egypt before the Exodus. I'm a slave. I've, I've grown up in slavery. I don't have the law. And I'm a liar. I lie a lot. I lie all the time. Um, yeah, maybe it's foolish. Maybe it's, it's, you know, not the best. But, but God has never told me do not lie. So am I sinning? Do you understand the question? It, is the fact that, you know, now all of a sudden I get out of Egypt, now we're at Mount Sinai, and God says, you shall not lie. Oh, man, now my foolish choice has become sin. Now, because God has given a law that says don't lie, now when I lie, now I'm actually sinning against God rather than perhaps just being 
foolish or not doing the best thing in a particular scenario. Do you understand the distinction there? Did, did the law, in effect, cause the sin to occur? Well, which is it? Well, biblically, I think you see evidence of both of these meanings. For, for the idea, for the first one, for the idea of sin being present in our hearts, even when we don't have the law, I would simply point us to Paul's comments in Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. And he opens, I'll just give you the first verse. He opens his comments there by saying that all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law and that all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, in that context, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, right? Jews are the ones who don't have, or excuse me, Gentiles are the ones who don't have the law. Jews are the ones who do have the law. And notice he says, whether they're Jew or Gentile, whether they do or do not have the law, what do they all do? They all sin. Some sin without the law, others sin under the law, but, but all sin. He goes on in that passage to make the point that when a, when a Gentile who does not have the law does things that the law requires, he makes or shows proof that his conscience is almost like a law to himself, that he knows better, that he shouldn't do these things, or he should do other things, and therefore he is judged on that fact. Therefore, Paul's point in that section <clears throat> is that all are sinners, every one of them, whether they have the law or not. So this would certainly support the idea of sin coming before the law. For the other idea, the idea of the law causing sin, I'll just take us back to a passage I showed us a few weeks ago, right? Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, Paul writes this. He says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Do you, do you see what he's doing there? He's using the law causes sin kind of argument hear that. I, I, I didn't even know about covetousness. And all of a sudden the law came and said, don't covet. Now, oh, because there's a law, the sin inside me just takes a hold of that. And all of a sudden I can't stop coveting. It's covet, covet, covet all day long, right? He, he says something similar, Romans 4, 15, when he says that when there is no law, there is no sin. So, so in, the, in the end, <clears throat> excuse me, we see that it's a false dilemma. It's not a, which is it? Is it sin before law or law before sin, it's not either or, it's actually a both and. Both are true at the same exact time. The law both exposes sin that is already there and it exacerbates that sin by giving us more to be responsible for, more things to violate, more ways in which we can, sin can take what God has asked us to do and called us to do and violate it. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. The law came in to increase the trespass. That's, just, that's the point. It came in to increase it. And I think he means that in every way. Exposing sin, exacerbating sin. The law is condemning to us in every way. It doesn't justify. It's not its purpose. It's there to condemn. Which, if I could quickly throw in a, a thought that was not in my notes, but has been on my mind this morning as I was driving in. Remember... Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus 
in John 3, when he comes to him by night, you know, Nicodemus, the brave soul, <laughs> who wants to know more about Jesus but doesn't want to be seen knowing more about Jesus, shows up in the middle of the night, and uh, Jesus talks to him. And I think, was it verse 17? I didn't write down the reference. Jesus says, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world. you remember this? But rather that the world through him might be saved. And sometimes I realize, you know, we as, even as Christians, as believers, we think about Christ and we still think of him in that condemning kind of way as if Jesus condemns us because we fail to do this, we fail to live up to that or whatever the case may be. Do you not understand? He didn't come to condemn. The law had condemned. He comes to save. He's completely different than the law. Just a little freebie there that's been on my mind since I drove in this morning. Secondly, he addresses the expiration date of the law when he says that it was until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. In other words, life under the law was not intended to be a permanent arrangement. It just wasn't. It was a placeholder, so to speak. It was put in place as a filler of sorts, I could say for the moment, until the offspring to whom all of those promises in Genesis 15 finally came so that they could be fulfilled. And even though Paul doesn't state it again here in verse 19, he just told us, right? He just told us in verse 16 who that offspring was. That offspring is Christ. So, so Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had finally come, God sends forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. This, that was the end of the law, the coming of Christ. And I would assume, by the way, that, that means not just for believers, but for everyone. Jew and Gentile alike, believer or unbeliever alike. The Jews today are no longer under the law because it has expired. Now, they may continue to live as if they're under the law, right? I could be put under house arrest for the next six months and not able to leave my home. And so I stay inside. I don't even go in the yard. But after six months, that expires. But for some reason, I never leave again. And 20 years pass. And in 20 years, you come back to me and you're like, Stacy, why are you still in your house? That ended 19 and a half years ago. Why, why are you still living as if you're under house arrest? I think that's actually not a terrible analogy for what the, the Jews do to this very day. They live as if they are still under that law, not understanding that it has come to an end. It expired when Christ came. And this is why I think Paul would be a little confused by Christians today who want to live under the Old Testament law in various ways and, and recreate it and maybe like reallocate uh, certain aspects of it to, uh, for their lives, whether that's in their life or in their church or just in society as a whole. I think he would scratch his head and go, why are you doing that? The law expired. It's over. It's it's done. There's no part of it left now. It, it, it ended. To use my, my comments on Ecclesiastes 3 from the picnic, that season is done. Why would you go back to it? So do you understand this point here? The law has an expiration date, and that date is the coming of Christ. Third, he addresses the circumstances of the giving of the law when he talks about it being put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, he says, but God is one. And these comments have less to do, I think, with why the law is given as much as they have to do with another way in which the law is inferior to faith. It was very common thought in Paul's day 
Jewish thought in Paul's day, that, that on Mount Sinai, Moses receives the commandments from angels. Okay, So you have to follow their law. You say, well, why, why would they think that? Because when you read the Old Testament, you don't get any sense of that at all. It sounds as if God is speaking directly to Moses, and I would agree there is nothing in the Old Testament that would make me think that angels are involved in any way, shape, or form. Why they thought that, um, I'm not 100% sure, but it became pretty common. And, you know, I don't know. Could there have been angels involved? Sure. Just because we're not told that they're involved doesn't mean that they're not involved, but, but I also have no reason to think that. And so, you know, it's not clear to me here if Paul is really affirming that idea as being true or if he's just latching on to what they already think to kind of take a jab at them with, with a particular point. Regardless, what he shows here is that according to that way of thinking, there's not one but two degrees of separation between Israel and God in the giving of the law. So in that setup, you have God who, second, through angels, gives the law to third, an intermediary, which is Moses, who then finally, fourth, gives it to the people, okay? So you've got two layers. You've God, angels, Moses, and then finally Israel. Whereas in Abraham's case, it's God, Abraham. God directly speaks to Abraham, gives him the law directly. There's no one in between. Therefore, it must be better. The law is inferior. Again, I don't think that has so much to do with why the law is given. I just think he can't stop attacking it. So, so then, why the law? Well, here's our initial answer for today that we're going to build on next week. It's three E's. I made this easy for you to remember. Write it down if you have to, because you're going to hear it a lot. Three E's. It is to expose and exacerbate sin until it expired. Hear that? Three EXs even. That was pretty good. Expose and exacerbate sin until it expired. Which, of course, is not how the Jews understood that at all. They thought of the law as being the source of righteousness and acceptance before God, but according to Paul, it's not that. It's not even close to that. It condemns. It brings nothing of justification, nothing of righteousness. It just condemns. And they viewed it as an eternal arrangement, but it wasn't. It was there to expose and exacerbate sin until it expired. And even though we didn't grow up Jewish, um, I suspect that most of us grew up in churches uh, of various sorts um, that to some extent or another still wanted to operate in some way, shape, or form as if they were under the law. In fact, I would go even further and say that in this room, more than we are even currently aware at the moment, all of us want to continue to operate in some way, shape, or form as if we are under the law. We as Christians, and I'm talking about Christianity as a whole here, we just don't know what to do with this thing that we call the law. It takes up such a big portion, right, of, of the Old Testament, the law and its working out in life of Israel. And we, we don't know what to do with it. Are we supposed to obey it? Uh, are, are we bound to it? Does it have any value for our life today? Are we supposed to maybe take parts of it and, and kind of update it for the church age while we throw other parts away? What exactly are we supposed to do with this thing? And you see expressions of this all over Christianity. And I'm using Christianity in the broadest possible sense here. If you grew up in a church that, that had priests, you're Catholic, Episcopalian, whatever the case may be, 
you know, why were they called priests? Where does the idea of a priest come from? That's from the law. That's people in the church age trying to take a, a, an Old Testament concept and try to bring it into the, the, you know, our day today and into the church and use it now as if somehow the, the guy up front is a stand between, between you and God? What? Is that biblical? Is that, do you have any support for that idea in the gospel, in the New Testament? Uh, maybe you're not from that background. Probably everyone's heard this one. What about the idea of tithing? Tithing. How many? I'll ask this one. You can raise your hand for this one. How many of you grew up in a church that talked about tithing? Almost 100%. I figured that would be the case. I've chuckled at this one over the years, and I, if you've ever been in a, a new members class with me, you've probably heard me say this. How, how many tithes were there in a standard year uh, in Judaism? How many? One, two, three, four, five. What do you think? Nothing? How about three? Three times a year, three different feasts, you were supposed to bring a tithe to the Lord. And then there was another feast, I don't remember which one, it was only every three years, you were supposed to bring a tithe to that one as well, which means if you're a good law-abiding Jew, 33 and a third percent is your number. Okay? Three times 10 plus a third. If anyone in here wants to go with that, I'm totally good with it. If you want to make that your goal as a family, I'm not going to complain. Uh, you know, the church has pulled that idea into our day of tithing, tithing, tithing. And some of you, I'm sure you have, and I'm not picking on anyone, I really am not, but you're like, oh, you know, I made $2,357 this month. I got to give $235.70. You know, you're, you're, you try to be very specific with it so that you don't violate what, and I'm just, you know, is that really what we find? Didn't Paul say in, in 1 Corinthians 9 that, that we're not supposed to give reluctantly or under compulsion? Why? Because God loves what? Cheerful giver. See, you know that, but you don't. Some of you can't live that way because you've been, it's been tie, 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 tie like that the whole time and you can't get your head out of it. And yet, you know, we're specifically told that we're supposed to give in response to the grace that has been given to us. Well, if that's the case, I got to give everything. See, we've completely misunderstood it. How about this? Have you ever um, heard Christians call their church building the house of God? I hate that one. I hate that. This is not God's house, okay? This is the converted roller skating rink. That's all it is, all right? Never forget that. This is just drywall and weird tiles and, you know, some carpet. You know, th this isn't an altar. I hate that one, too. This is a stage. I never have understood that unless Jordan's doing weird things when I'm not around. Nothing ever gets killed up here. Don't tell me if you do. I don't want to know. You know, people, uh, I, I could keep going. I won't do it because we'll get, you know. People talk about these things and they want to bring these aspects, but yet nobody ever, I never heard anybody in the church like preach a sermon of why you shouldn't wear a, a shirt made out of a cotton polyester blend. Or why, you know, well, I won't say that one. I, I just want you to see, I had one written down, but it's not good. I, to see how confused, I want you to see how confused and inconsistent we are with this topic. And again, as I said before, I think if Paul were to come into the to our churches today and just look around, just spend a few minutes just listening and watching and looking, I think he would be so confused as to why we as Christians continue to try to pull in these things from the Old Testament law. Why, why would we try to recreate or reappropriate these things? Don't you get it? The law's done. It's over. It'd be like trying to write a report for your boss on stone. No one does that. 
We live in the age of computers. We don't go back to that now. I think he would be baffled. The law brings condemnation. What do you want? Because we have something so much better than the law. Something that doesn't condemn, it justifies. Something that that isn't temporary, it's permanent. And what is that? Well, you partially know, and I bet you partially don't. And unless I get sick, you'll have to come back next week to find out. Let's pray. Father, we know we are just getting started, just trying to begin to understand what it is that you were doing with the law. And we see an initial answer, but it is just initial that that it came, it was given to expose and exacerbate sin until it expired. It was not meant to be permanent. When you came, Jesus, the law ended. It's just done. It's done. There's no going back to it now. That, That doesn't even make sense. You have given us something so much better, something new. And, and, and what we had there was condemnation. We can never keep it. it. It just showed and highlighted our sinfulness over and over and over again. And yet you did not come to condemn. You came to bring life. So why would we go back? And yet, Lord, I get it. This is, this is the temptation of our hearts. We are, we, I resonate so much with what Paul says in Philippians 3. It's so tempting to try to go back and build a righteousness of my own through the law and apart from Christ. It's the temptation, I think, of all of our hearts. And so as we work through this and try to understand it, I pray that you will show us the sufficiency of Christ to understand everything that that means for us and how we now as believers are supposed to live today, not relying on a law, rather relying on the Spirit. Help us, Lord, to get these things over the next few weeks, we ask in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.